0: Lisa had the main part, and she was more or less the teacher's aide. Because every time somebody stumbled over their part, they would look to Lisa, and she knew every one of the parts, and she would give them, This, is, these are the words you're supposed to say. It was, it. was It gave me sort of a sense of Lisa into actually who she is today. That's the context for this particular passage. I hope you have it written out in front of you because it's a longer one we are going to see God in a situation that is relatively new to the Israelites. And the the new situation is, what will God do when he is utterly discarded by his people? What will he do? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sticks with these people. But they're relatively decent. They they, They didn't discard him in mass. What will he do When he is discarded by the people. The situation is that Moses is on the mountain meeting with the Lord, uh, and the people, meanwhile, are discarding him. They're tossing off their God who simply who just showed this greatness over all the gods of Egypt, and with these these shocking wonders and signs. And they're trading him in for other gods that They can hopefully manipulate uh, to do the things they want them to do. It was a stunning situation, stunning. Uh, Meanwhile, Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments, by the way, were not merely tablets of stone. They were ways that God was going to come to his people and, and, in a sense, do a vow renewal ceremony. In situations that are new, sometimes the Lord would do that. He would come and reaffirm His commitment to his people, and the tablets or stone were essentially the contract for that commitment. So Moses comes down from the mountain. He hears the people running amok, and he breaks not just the tablets, but he symbolically breaks this covenant that God has established with his people. That's where we find the passage in front of you. Longer passage, two parts to it. The first one is a conversation with Moses. Uh, the second one is, in many ways, a high point in the Old Testament where God renews his commitments, He renews his vow to his people. So, how will the Lord respond when he is wholesalely rejected by, by his people? This is what he will do. He will begin by saying... Let's talk. Let's talk about this. I'm reading from Exodus 33. So the Lord meets with Moses. He said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the first number of times I read this passage, I didn't quite catch it. The Lord is going to go with them by way of an angel. That seems like a good thing. He goes on and he says, But I myself will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> you get it. yeah. It's, uh, when the people heard this, Heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Um, New situations, new revelations of, of who our God is. Moses said to the Lord, now Moses is this unusual person. He gets God. He understands that God is saying to him, I am the one where we can speak about these things. So let's speak about it together. And Moses says this. You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, enough, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. In other words, Moses is saying, I need you. Go with us. Not an angel. You have to go with us. That's, That's what he's saying. And then he adds this, oh, and remember, these are your people. They're not my people. These are your people. You're the one who claimed them as your own. A little bit cheeky. Um, The Lord replied to Moses. How's he going to reply? That's the question. It's a new situation. What's he going to say? How dare you speak about these things to me? My mind is made up. That's what you would anticipate. That's what the people were anticipating. And, And the Lord says, My presence will go with you. Actually, the the emphasis is on you. Not you all, but you. My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Then Moses said, no, 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 can do. Uh, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Pleased with your people? Um, What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words, no, you can't just go with me and meet with me privately on the side. You must go with us. And the Lord said, of course. Okay, that's that's what I will do. I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. New situations. You know somebody in a different way, a better way. Now to really one of the high points of the Old Testament. People are uncertain as to who God is and how he's going to respond in this new situation. So he chooses this time to essentially do what he was going to do before, make a vow to his people that they are his and he is theirs and he will be with them. And if they think their own sin is sufficient to somehow discard him, and turn him away, they have another thing coming. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets. In other words, we are going to do this again. Nothing has changed. The idolatry of the people hasn't changed anything. We're going to make those two tablets again. Like the first ones, I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet, <laughs> which you broke. <laughs> so, you know, on one hand, it seems like he said, yeah, he's just like a little bit of blame. on," you know, But... But um, it's more like this. Those tablets, by the way, which you broke, I didn't break them. I was not interested in breaking the covenant. You anticipated that this would. Be ready in the morning, then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone. First one, like the first ones, went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, which is going to be the theme song throughout all of Scripture of the God who comes close to his people and is with us. And he proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord is a particular name. Sometimes we say Yahweh, whenever you see it in capital letters, or a capital L and small caps, O-R-D. It is this particular name. He passed in front of Moses. And here's Here's the vow that he makes. The Lord, the Lord. What's he going to say next? The compassionate and gracious God. Who would have thought? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What? Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. A little bit of a... By the way, this is foundational to so many other passages of Scripture that that speak about the character of God, but sometimes they, they... Elide, this particular section, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We'll get to that. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I'm adding the section of those who hate me. The Lord is renewing vows, and it is a pinnacle. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament build on these particular vows. So what, what, what I'd like to do is I would like to go through them briefly and, and see if we have other words to identify these words. The more words you have for something, the better you know it. And see if we can, we can put it in statements that God says to you, to, to us. Begins this way. So anyway, that's, that's all to say the outline in front of you is that, that statement, that extended statement from the Lord. We'll go through those words. The Lord, the Lord. What is he saying? I am the promise maker and the promise keeper. I invite you to listen. And this is what he says first. The God compassionate. The God Compassionate. You might have known that word was coming, but it is, it is so incongruous. It makes no sense in light of the situation, in light of what is happening. What's compassion? I love you in my very bones. I love you in my very bones. I love you deeply, profoundly. Have you ever had a friend who as you speak about something difficult in your life, the friend is, is sort of wincing along, along with the story. The friend can feel it with you. A particularly difficult story, next time you look at your friend, you, friend, you find that your friend is, is crying. If you have a friend like that, you know you're in really good hands. It's a friend who is compassionate, who who loves you so deeply, the person loves you in their very bones. Hosea chapter 11. Much later in history, but building on this fundamental vow renewal in Exodus 33 and 34. the People, once again, have discarded their God. And the Lord says this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And the answer is obvious. It's easy to give the people up. Because they gave God up. Why wouldn't he give them up right right back? And this is what he says. He feels it in his bones. He loves you so deeply, it's in his bones. My heart recoils within me. It's hard to translate that particular word, but it's like my stomach is doing flip-flops. You think I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you now? Where my love for you is so deep I can feel it in my very being. That's what it means. My my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my anger. This is Hosea 11.8. I will not destroy you because I am God, not a man. Another human being would have a contract where if you broke it, that would be the end of the contract. But this is a strange contract where it's based on the one who makes the promises and keeps the promises. And he says, Oh, by the way, the reason why you weren't expecting this is because I'm the Holy One. I am not like a man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and the Holy One does things differently than what you would expect. You are in good hands when somebody loves you in their very bones. The compassionate God. And if you think you are too bad for this God, well,. You are in good company for the, with those who have discarded him. The second word, compassionate and gracious, gracious. This, the New Testament picks up this particular word. So many of the epistles, they begin grace to you. They end grace to you. But let's, one of the things we want to do is try to take these words that we're familiar with. We've heard them a number of times, but how can they be recast in a way that captures the essence of them? Grace is this, essentially. He has what you need. He has what you need. The better, he alone has what you need. And he is pleased to give it to you. He alone has what you need. Psalm 81, verse 10. I am the Lord, Lord, capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the promise-making and promise-keeping God, who has established this particular section of Scripture as this fundamental vow to the people and to us. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Perhaps if we want to be more succinct, Jesus says to the two blind men in Matthew 20, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That is the gracious God. He comes to you in the morning. What do you want me to do for you? Now, the challenge for us here is, by the way, there's, there's something where we are entering into this, so we respond to it. We won't get into this too much now, but but does raise a question and what is it that you need that you can get from God and Him alone? Two different responses. One, one is, hey, I'm good today. I don't need anything today. That's, that's a serious derangement of reality to the gracious God. Or another, I, I just read this this past week I want to be famous. A man who prayed, I want to be famous. That was his goal. Uh, The question is, and it actually takes some time. What do you need that only Christ alone can give you? What do you need today? Otherwise, his graciousness, you will gloss right over it because you're good today. What do you need that only Jesus can give you? He wakes you up in the morning. What do you want me to do for you today? Common ones, comfort in the midst of misery. Forgiveness in the midst of our own indifference toward him. Strength to be able to love in ways that we don't. All of those brought together, here's what I want. Like Moses, I can't go anywhere unless you are with me. You be with me today. And of course, he's happy do such things. He's especially pleased because we've asked the the best of things. Compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. They were anticipating that in his anger he would destroy them. He is the God who proclaims himself in a new way. He is the God who is slow to anger. Now, the very word anger for many of us is, is it's horrifying because it's triggering because, because you have been damaged by the anger of other people. In a moment, you can think of how you've been damaged by the anger of other people. Not to mention you have damaged other people in your own anger. Perhaps one way to, to take to anger and put it into sort of a proposition that God speaks to you, it's this. He says to you, Let's talk. Let's talk. Isaiah chapter 1. The the picture is, is, Israel is covered with sin, the rejection of God, rebellion against him from head to toe. There is not one fiber of their being that turns toward their God. And at the end of the chapter, remember what he says? Come. Let us reason together. Come. Let's talk of these things, the God who who puts his anger on Simmer. And we have just observed that in his relationship with Moses. So here is the God who is angry with sin. What does anger look like? Moses, let's talk about this. The Lord essentially seems to make a proposal, but he makes a proposal not to give an edict to Moses, but to invite Moses to talk him out of it. Let's talk about this together. So when you hear about the anger of God, don't think anything of what you have done yourself or you have heard from other people because it is a holy anger. Nobody in the midst of their anger has said to you most likely, come on, come, come closer, come closer. Let's talk about this together. Let's talk about this together. My mind is not made up. Let's talk about these things together. The God who is slow to anger passage goes on. The God who is abounding in love. Now, the word here is a word that some of you may be familiar with. It's the word hesed, which is the word for I swear myself to love you. It is going to be a steadfast love for you. Uh, it is going to be unmovable. It is going to be the I do of marriage. I swear myself to love you. Perhaps the word here that we want to capture is this abundant love. It's really big. It's really big. They'll say more about that as as the passage goes on. But it begins this abounding and steadfast love. There There are two situations I think of right away when I think of steadfast love. One was a guy named Robertson McQuilkin. He's deceased now. But he was the president of, he was the new president of a place called Columbia Bible College, which is still still around. It was suited to him. He was the right person at the right time. Within a few months of him moving into this position, his wife was diagnosed with dementia. And they were were both fairly young at the time. Uh, Well, what does he do? He gets somebody to help out. He hires somebody to, to take care of his wife. But what he noticed was that his wife seemed to be calm really when he was around. She quickly didn't know who he was, but somehow his presence was an influence on her. So what did he do? It was easy for him. New situations, he learned more about people. Here's a new situation. What did he do? He immediately resigned from his position because steadfast love meant that he was going to persist with his wife. There was just no question he was happy to do it. A, um, another situation that I think of. A, a man who had been a drug addict for, for a good bit of his life. And, and his wife had said, the next time you lie to me about drugs, I, I'm leaving. It was the 20th time or the 50th time. The next time you do, I'm leaving. One day she... He came home, he was different. She said, I know what you've been doing. You've, you've been using. And I think it caught him off guard. He didn't have a chance to lie, and he acknowledged it. New situation, what's she going to do? She said this, what are we going to do about this? What are we? I'm not trying to give you a strategy to deal with, with addictions, but this is an illustration of steadfast love where a person is trashing the relationship in favor of something else, and she says, what are we going to do about this together? How are we going to stand and fight? He would identify it as a turning point in his life. They would be illustrations of steadfast love. Now, it's big, so it's going to pile on a bit more. Uh, To steadfast love is the word faithfulness. The, The idea of that particular word is he is true to his word. When Jesus says, verily, verily, he is identifying himself as the God of abundant faithfulness or abundant truthfulness. I was, I was, I was actually thinking about this passage uh, the other day, and, and uh, right around that time, I had a Zoom event that I had to be part of. And, you know, I think the Zoom event was starting at four. So two minutes before four, I, which I thought was... Not punctual, I thought it was early. Uh, two minutes before four, I got on. And as soon as the, the Zoom, the, the conveners of the group, saw that I was there, somebody said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. In other words, she, what she was saying was, I don't think you're that trustworthy. Because uh, <laughs> I, 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 you said you're going to come. I didn't know if you were going to come for sure or not. And all I could think of was the irony of a person saying, I'm glad you're there. In contrast to the God who, who speaks verily, verily, and you can be utterly certain that He will do what He has said. He is true to His word because, because he is unmovable in his love, undistracted in his love, and nothing is powerful to get, powerful enough to get in the way between, between him and you, the object of his affection. So this abundant chesed, this steadfast love, add to that truthfulness. Now add to it that abounding. Now the, the word abounding there, it's, it's big. It's translated in different ways. Big, large, many, many faithfulness, many steadfast love. It's also identified in a few places as thousands, thousands of love. Children would understand this. I love you so much. I love you so much. No. I love you the world. I love you the whole world. I love you the whole world. It's Hebrew. Hebrew sort of imitates the kind of language that children are familiar with. And then finally, somebody says, I love you infinity." Infinity, of course, is sort of the deal breaker. There's no other conversation after that. I love you, infinity. That's, that's what's packaged in to these vows in the word abounding. It's, it's big Hesed, bigger than you imagine. It's the world hesed. It's affinity Hesed. It's infinity truthfulness. And more, it's not only big, but it's eternal maintaining love to thousands of generations. And, and the, the idea there is, maintaining is, he is guarding that love. That love is so precious to him, he is protecting that love, and he's going to protect it forever. He's going to protect it for thousands of generations. It doesn't mean the thousand in one generation is in, is in trouble. It's just a figure of speech saying there is no love. Nothing will be able to fear. No world empire can interfere with his love. For you. He will not fatigue. He will not sleep. His kingdom will not be overthrown because the eternal lover of your soul is the one who stands, who sits on the throne. Don't forget. Don't forget the context of this. This is a new situation. What is God going to do when he is completely discarded by his people? This is his response. And it all rests on this. If you think your sins are big enough to somehow interfere with his commitment to be with his people, you have another thing coming. Your assurance of his presence in everything he said rests on this, that he is the God, unlike all other gods, who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Three different words for sin. It basically means anything you can think of. He, this is, this is what he forgives. Perhaps the, the picture there is, is a helpful one. Uh, for, can you see forgiving? One way to see it is this. The, the picture is he lifts up sins. He lifts them up. He, they are this oppressive burden on you. He picks them up. He takes them off you. And obviously we know the story. Christ himself is lifted up. He takes your sins as, as you simply respond in your own meek and weak and inadequate way, I do right back at you. In, in that, his is ours and ours is his. And he lifts up your very sins on this cross and takes them on himself and, and away from us. There's only one thing that can separate you from the Lord, and that is your sins. That's why this is sort of the the foundational expression of his love. Now nothing can separate you from the very love of God. There's one other section to this. Um, It ends with a, a warning, as it should, given what's just taken place. People that turn from the Lord, when you turn from the Lord, misery is sure to follow. And With that in mind, the Lord says this, And by no means, most certainly, will those who persist in their own sin and turn away from the Lord, will their guilt be cleared? But, but that sin and its consequences will stay with them uh, on the fathers to the children and children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Now, don't worry about the third and fourth generation. Uh, it, it's, it's the third and fourth generation if you persist in the turning away from the Lord as a father did or a grandfather. <coughs> that's, 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 it's, don't think in terms of generational curses. The scripture is very clear later on that a, a son doesn't die for his father's sins. Each person experienced the concept of their own unrepented sins. The, what, what, the, what the point of the passage is, is this. That his love is without limits. It's without limits. Extends for generations. But his anger, his anger, is standing against unrepented sin, where people persist in going away from the Lord, is within limits. It is within limits. It is, it is, um, it is not unleashed, and it is always, it is always inviting the person who has turned away from the Lord to come back. Anger, of course, in its holy version, is good. It stands against the injustice that many of us have experienced. It is the reason, if God is not angry with sin, we have no reason to be angry with it ourselves. We have no reason to take a stand against our own sin if we do not share in something of his anger. Perhaps the important part of this final warning is this. The children of Israel didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They were, they were discarding God. They didn't even know it. So the, the question is, what is it that sin feels like? It rarely, if ever, feels like shaking your fist at God, saying to him, I don't care what you say, I'm going to go my own way. That's not the way it feels. In, in, instead, it, it feels more like you just, you're just sort of going your own way. That's all you're just doing like you're like everybody else you're doing the things you want to do but that might look okay in one sense, but if you do not belong to him that's normal. you do what you want to do you wander and the picture here is you're wandering around in the wilderness and you will die in the wilderness because no, no human being can live in the wilderness without help because there's Because there are animals and predators galore. There are other nations, and you're not going to find any food. That's life in the wilderness on your own. But if you in any way say that, yes, God is your God, then then the indifference of just sort of walking on your own is more like this. I think this can capture it a bit more. Uh, It's You're married to someone. You're married to someone. You said, I would do, to another person. But you live life as a single person. You, you do what you want when you want it. You, your spouse doesn't quite have what you need, and so you, you look any other place for it. Now, with that particular imagery, it's, it should be arousing to us that there's something not right about that treat a relationship in such a way. And here's what God does in the midst of it. He says, let's talk. Let's talk. Come here. Come close. Let's talk about this together. Come, Return. Come back. Let's talk. That's the God who is slow to anger. That's that's how he gives his warning. The passage ends this way. Moses bowed down to the ground. After you hear something this amazing, that's what you should do. Uh, uh, you bow down to the ground, and he worshipped. He said this, Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And the Lord says, happy to, happy to and then maybe citing Hosea 11. Oh, you expected that I would respond to you like a mere human being would. But I am happy to, and I am happy to forgive his sins because I'm the Holy One. I am not who you would expect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for this particular vow renewal that is embedded in Exodus, but it's embedded in our lives today. May May we hear the same way that Moses heard. In the name of Christ, amen.